Welcome to Commonweal. How many of you are at Commonweal for the first time? Let me just ask. Great. Welcome, welcome. And welcome to alumni of the Commonweal Cancer Help Program. How many alumni do we have here today? Great. Welcome back. Um, it is a wonderful pleasure to have Keith and Penny Block here with Mark Reniker this week. And uh, I want to offer a special acknowledgement to uh, Penny Block, who is the executive director of the Block Center. Penny, could you raise your hand and just be acknowledged? Uh, Penny plays an absolutely central role in the work that they've done together uh, for decades at the Block Center. And I had the opportunity to visit there about three months ago, and it became extraordinarily clear to me that this is a partnership in the deepest sense of the word, and that uh, Penny's contribution is extraordinary. So, Penny, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to uh, begin introducing Keith, and then I'm going to ask Keith's and my friend Mark Reniker to uh, join me in introducing Keith. Um, let me just say a word about Mark. Many of you know Mark. He's a physician in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, he is uh, one of my heroes. Uh, he is the co-founder of the Surfers Medical Association. He is a world-class surfer. The New Yorker wrote a piece on him, known among surfers as Doc Hazard. And uh, it's never entirely clear whether he's Doc Hazard because he surfs extraordinarily large waves around the world or whether he's Doc Hazard because you should get out of his way if you see him coming. So, uh, But he is Doc Hazard in the surfer community. And he and Keith met at Commonweal at one of the Symington Foundation conferences on New Directions in Cancer Care, which we did here uh, for many years. Uh, and they became fast friends, and uh, uh, Mark taught Keith to surf, and they have surfed all over the world. Well, all right, didn't teach you to surf, but improved his skills. Is that fair, Keith? <laughs> but in any case, let's put it this way. They've surfed down near the South Pole together, and so they are serious, serious surfing buddies. Uh, I also want to acknowledge Susan Braun, the executive director of Commonweal, who is right in the back here. Uh, Susan has been with Commonweal since January. Um, it is an unbelievable pleasure and privilege to have this extraordinary woman uh, here. Before she came here, she was the for nine years the CEO of the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Fund and responsible for its extraordinary growth and development. And after that, for two years, uh, she was the director of the ASCO Cancer Foundation, uh, the American Society of Clinical Oncology Cancer Foundation in Washington, D.C. So, Susan, thank you for your leadership and uh, guidance at Commonweal. So... I will just start with a few of the facts about who Keith is and then ask Mark to say something a little more interpretive. 
Uh, Keith is the Director of Integrative Medical Education at the University of Illinois College of Medicine, Medical Director of the Block Center for Integrative Cancer Treatment in Evanston, Illinois, and Founder and Scientific Director of the Nonprofit Institute for Integrative Cancer Research and Education. He's also the Editor-in-Chief of the peer-reviewed professional journal Integrative Cancer Therapies and a member of the National Cancer Institute's uh, Physician Data Query Complementary and Alternative Medicine Editorial Board. And let me just add to that that uh, when I started researching uh, integrative cancer therapies uh, about uh, 27 years ago, uh, Keith was one of the most impressive people that I came across in the field. Um, we have been friends for uh, at least uh, that period of time. And um, I believe that the challenge that Keith presents to the practice of oncology as it is practiced today in the United States is a serious challenge. It is a... Um, I can't do better, really, than, than read to you the quote on the cover from Robert Newman, professor of experimental therapeutics at MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Newman says, I consider Dr. Block to be the guiding force in the world of integrative cancer treatment. This book is his life-giving gift to cancer patients everywhere. Keith has something very serious to say about how integrative oncology should be practiced. So it's a great privilege to have him here with us. And Mark, I'd like to ask you to say a few words. So just to clarify on the surfing lessons question, the deal is this. So Michael, way back in the late 80s or so, had the wisdom and a grant from a family to convene, I don't know, the 30 or 40 folks that he pretty much thought were doing innovative work in cancer. And we would all have a retreat here for several days. And, and I was proud to be invited to this. And that was where I met Keith Block. And the story was, well, you should see the schedule. It's worked out by the minute. And there really isn't much time for wellness or, you know, we're meeting, we're meeting, we're meeting. And so finally there's like this one little hour and a half window. And I tore down there <clears throat> by the little overlooking the, the surf down there. And was changing madly into my wetsuit. And Keith Block happens to walk by. And I'm, I didn't even want to talk to anyone. I just want to get down there. And, and uh, Keith says, oh, where are you going surfing? I said, well, there's actually a good surf spot right below where we're meeting. He goes, really? I used to surf. And I thought, oh, my God, that's so sad. And... <laughs> He, he, and he told me he'd grown up in Florida and he was a hardcore surfer and, I, and, and then he'd moved to Chicago and he just had sort of given up surfing. And, and I said, you know, I have another board and another wetsuit in the car. Do you want to go? Boom, he was on it. And we, we, we had to climb down this gorge. It was this like waterfalls and it, it was magical. I, I can hardly remember what the surf was like, but we just had a great time together. And so he's a born-again surfer. Because <laughs> he could stand up even then. I mean, it, it, he could surf. The other thing that um, became apparent to me is that even in this group of what you might call sort of, I don't know, elite or experienced practitioners that were coming from all different angles, whether it be 
you know, hardcore chemotherapy, conventional oncology or radiation therapy or surgical oncology or then the mind-body people and the sort of spirit people and the sort of real alternative people. Everybody kind of had, I'm going to say, even though they talk about holism and holistic medicine, there was kind of a narrowness to some extent from their perspective, just experientially. But it was really unique in hearing Keith Block speak of what he was doing even back then, of truly combining, or what we call now integrating, what you might call conventional or allopathic oncology, cancer treatments, the chemotherapy and all that, and at the same time, all these other things that we were just kind of beginning to talk about, the the relationship medicine, the mind-body, the intentionality, all of the things of the psychological aspects combined with nutritional aspects and exercise. And Keith was the first person I met who really had kind of put it all together and to my surprise had been doing this for years. And one of the things that came out of our annual meetings that I was struck by was, just to put it bluntly, the burnout among us doing this work. Because you don't really get any support from the conventional physician medical community. You know, um, as you can well imagine, I mean, emotionally, it's, it's pretty draining work. And so there was always this, this difficulty that I saw among all of us of sort of trying to keep balance. And that was really the point that I began to see Keith Block as unique because he enters deeply into these relationships with patients, pulling out all the stops, working at so many levels at once, and somehow doesn't lose himself in it. it is, you know, they talk about the wounded healer. And you know, we, we, we would spend hours at our meetings sort of helping people sort of get sort of recharged or something. But Keith has always kind of kept what we call in surfing his stoke. And you know, I'm a big fan of Wallace Stegner. And, um, you know, his books are often about transformation through different events in one's life. And I've thought of this often in relation to Keith. The the classic Stegner book was Angle of Repose. Many of you have probably read it. But it's this idea that you really go through your life, in a sense, having often profound experiences. And through that, find this sort of angle of repose that is your angle that lets you then go forward through life. And Keith has that. And and you're going to hear that in this presentation. Keith Block. Commonwealth has been uh, a major source, I think, of replenishment and healing for Penny and me um, through this whole process of the last 30 years of work. And so I'm going to get started on this because I probably have deviated from Michael's rules just a little bit, and I probably have 47 minutes instead of 40, so I'll get started, all kidding aside. Um, I I do want to thank Commonweal, particularly Michael, uh, for all of the support over the years and really what it's meant to our work, uh, which I don't actually think would have been possible without the support of a community like Commonweal and friends like Mark. Well, you know, before I, you know, really go into this in any great 
depth, I just want to say that this was 30 years of work and possibly several even before that. And it was 10 years of actual writing. And I lost a surfboard. In fact, I may have lost two surfboards and bets about when I was going to finish the book to Mark. So I thought some of you would you know, kind of appreciate that. But I do want to say that the cover, I actually participated in not the painting of. Uh, the drawing uh, was actually one of Oprah's staff. Um, that did it for us. I was trying to uh, capture something that Penny and I understand to be very critical uh, in the experience of cancer uh, for patients. And that, if you've ever walked up to the David in Florence, in the El Duomo, uh, as you walk up, you notice slaves on the side. And the slaves are actually ripping through marble. They're twisted, and they're kind of ripping out through the marble. And it's been a kind of uh, metaphor for me over the years of the experience of how patients often see their biology as destiny. And I very strongly believe that our biology is not our destiny, that our biology is transformable. So the, the image was actually initially, and I've never really actually talked about this in great deal of how it came out, but this was supposed to be DNA around the legs, but it just didn't look right. And so the artist kind of turned it into something a little bit more exhilarating in terms of uh, being able to overcome one's biology. And that was really a kind of very strong message in terms of what we were trying to do. During this 10-year period of writing, uh, I should point out, we also launched the medical journal of this field called Integrative Cancer Therapies. So it wasn't actually you know, just one book that we were working on during all of this time, managing a patient load that was a fairly, as you all can appreciate, serious patient load, but also at the same time managing four kids uh, and some five grandkids, actually. But we also launched this medical journal, so it did take a little bit of time. Um, this is available, and it's actually written as a, for really for uh, sophisticated lay folk. It wasn't just written, written for uh, medical practitioners. Um, so our clinic has been running since 1980. Um, we have a large staff. I'll show you some pictures of the clinic and stuff. We have medical oncologists and internists, physician assistants, nurses, dietitians, physical therapists, psychotherapists, and even a research team uh, really funded by ourselves uh, over these last 30 years, which has been a bit of an ouch. Um, unfortunately, as you'll hear me talk about, uh, that's, uh, I think, impaired the movement as not the lack of funding uh, for this uh, research and work. Uh, so you'll think I'm nuts, but actually it's really rare that a cancer patient dies from cancer. It's actually extremely rare. I've been doing this for 30 years, and, or 29 and a half, and um, I could count on two hands how many patients actually have died from cancer. So what do I mean by that? Patients die from complications associated with the disease and with treatments. And these complications are actually often preventable completely. They can be slowed down. They can be stabilized. Patient can be contained. Their disease can be contained. Their disease can be approached as a chronic illness and at times even by the ability to eradicate a disease. So things like pneumonia, embolism, wasting syndromes, uh, obstructive illness, uh, organ failure, and, but it's really this kind of pneumonia and uh, embolisms that seem to be high on the hit parade of what leads to cancer for patients. Um, this is a little bit of a trick here. I don't think I have a laser pointer, so I'll do it by hand for you. But when we talk about quality of life, the consequences of cancer are what get patients. And these quality of life 
effects that we all suffer from in terms of fatigue, insomnia, appetite, et cetera, lead to a variety of biochemical and clinical and treatment-related effects. Biochemically, things like inflammation can occur and lead to pain syndromes. Clinical complications can occur. Um, Patients can develop neuropathy, fatigue, muscle wasting. And treatment side effects, of course, like neuropathy uh, and chemo-induced nausea and vomiting can occur. And here, I'll come back to this later, but treatment interference in terms of resistance isn't something that you don't have some control over. In fact, the toxic metabolites from chemotherapy can lay a burden in one's system that leads to resistance downstream and even a more aggressive cancer when it comes back. All of these things cascade into issues of recurrence and progression as well as these life-threatening complications, and that can impact survival. And it's my strong opinion that without going into all the details on this slide, that an integrative program can actually block every one of these tracks or at least slow down these tracks and create a complete different biology and results for patients. Now, if it only affected treatment side effects and nothing else, you would look at this and you would say, okay, does that mean that integrative care has a role And I would say it has a major role, and it even has a role in terms of outcome for patients, because this is one of many studies. This was published in uh, JCO in 2005, the Journal for Clinical Oncology, and it was early-stage breast cancer patients. And if they didn't complete their full chemotherapy cycles, uh, they had shorter survivals. Um, So I would argue that an integrative program is going to reduce toxicity for patients, allowing patients to complete a full course of chemotherapy, leading to improved survival rates. And so we, over time, developed a model. And the model really started off with everything that one would believe in conventional medicine, but this is kind of where it starts and, unfortunately, for many years, stopped. Now there's more direction and recognition of quality of life issues, but it's still mostly lip service. It's not part of the rigor of going through care and treatment and decision-making as part of a whole system of care. It's still sort of an afterthought. Now, when I talk about this, you know, you can think about the obvious, you know, message of a surgeon, right? Um, And a surgeon, I can't imagine one not wanting a patient that's more physically, emotionally, nutritionally fit. So why should that be any different for any medical oncology practice anywhere on the globe. In other words, the idea of taking a patient and turning them into you know, an Olympic athlete is actually not so far off track. Not necessarily the intensity, but the intensity of commitment in terms of really battling and reestablishing one's biological integrity. So I'm going to talk about these three spheres today and talk about biography of a patient, the patient's story. And the patient's story is as relevant, not just the story of how they got here, but the story of where they are going to actually transform that story into something that's really healing and positive, no matter what happens with the disease, and even more so because I think it can actually impact the disease. Um, And then I'm going to talk about the biochemical environment a lot. This has been kind of a big baby of mine for a long time. Uh, Penny and I believe that this environment, it's just as much about the, the soup, if you will, the pool where these cells reside in, as much as the cells. In other words, it's just as much about the terrain as it is the tumor. And I'll show you some data to support this. And I would argue this is all part of a system of care that can not only impact quality of life, but impact outcome, that it can actually impact survival. 
And this is just another way of looking at that same kind of these different component parts of our program. And they're synergisms, right? 2 plus 2 plus 2 might not equal 6. It might equal 64 or 128. And that these, in combination, affect the challenges that every cancer patient faces. And these challenges include tumor growth or recurrence, uh, treatment side effects, treatment response, quality of life, and as I mentioned, life-threatening complications. So it's kind of a, a whole approach in terms of care. Now I show you a few patients, not to claim that this happens for every patient, but to say that it is possible and that the more patients do, I believe, and have experienced firsthand, the better they do. So this is a gentleman from Colorado, used to drive in to two hours from Stapleton Airport, jump on a plane and come see us monthly for a year and a half in 1990. He had been given a year to live with kidney cancer with lung and lymph metastasis disease. Um, and what I mostly want you to see is, is his face, because the next picture will show him having de-aged, if there's such a thing. He's chronologically 15 years older, but he looks 10 years younger biologically. He actually changed his cattle farm to an organic vegetable farm. <laughs> and so I say he traded cattle for carrots. In 2001, I received a bottle of sake, and he reminded me that we had talked about drinking sake together a decade later, and so when this came, I had no recollection of that, of course, and called him on the phone and said, Greg, what's this bottle about? And he reminded me of the story. Okay, I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit because of time today, but... This is a gentleman that came to see us in uh, 1987. He was diagnosed. He had metastatic prostate cancer with bone metastases. His doctor told him, your diet has nothing to do with it. Um, he went home after our visit, and he told his wife, he said, honey, throw out the roast. We're going vegetarian. <laughs> and he's alive and well. He was in the office just a couple of months ago. He's completely free of disease on all scans. This woman had a metastatic pancreatic cancer was inoperable in 1987. She's alive and well today. She was sent home with no treatment. Um, these patients from the left top uh, over, she's a breast cancer patient with liver metastases. I'll talk about her story in a little bit. It's a patient with metastatic ovarian cancer. Uh, this is a gentleman with brain cancer out 12 years, uh, the ovarian cancer out 14 and a half. Um, this is a woman with pancreatic cancer was on uh, CNN um, last year uh, with Sanjay Gupta with liver metastases. She's out five years from Green Bay, Wisconsin. This gentleman's been uh, off and on uh, under our care uh, for 26 years with adenocarcinoma of the pancreas and liver metastases. Uh, and the guy in the far left bottom has metastatic colon cancer with liver metastases. He actually helped get involved with launching the Colon Cancer Alliance after he uh, cleared, uh, and he's 11 years out and free of disease and sees us regularly. So I'm going to talk about this first sphere, the top one, biography, in terms of diet and lifestyle. And just give you kind of a flavor of this. I'm not trying to convince you today in terms of the science. The science is very much in the book, and it also gives you what to do in terms of framing the actual uh, information of what we wanted to do. The editor's sole goal with us was to write down a book that could be done without us. So that was really the, you know, kind of a big design. Having said that, I'm well aware that patients need support and hands-on care to really implement stuff in an individual way. But we'll talk more about that. I'm going to talk just briefly about diet, physical care, and mind-spirit. I'm not going to get into every one of these components of the book. We assess patients individually in terms of every one of these components. Um, we use objective testing and, in some cases, subjective testing. Uh, these are different tests that we do in terms of nutrition, fitness, mind-spirit, and attitude. These are 
actually validated questionnaires that we use, uh, and they are used in hospitals and uh, medical centers around the country. We've just pulled them together in a kind of unique way to allow us to make decisions in really tailoring a care to a particular patient. So you talk about nutrition, and I can't have a group like this together and not at least hit food a little bit. So the average American eats 90 pounds of fats a year, 23 gallons of ice cream, 7 pounds of potato chips, 134 pounds of refined sugar, 22 pounds of candy, and 365 cans of soda pop. And because I don't drink any, that means somebody's drinking 730. (laughs) All right. And so there's good carbs and bad carbs, and you know this, and I certainly shouldn't be educating you, but I'll educate you more in the book in terms of the details of why this is so important. But I'll come back to this in a little bit. There's also good fats and bad fats, and I'm happy to challenge the American Dietetic Association and say, yes, I do think there are bad foods. Sorry, I'm not particularly thrilled with some of the uh, confectionery junk that's inside of plastic wraps that we have, and I would have a hard time claiming that all food is good in the right quantity. Um, so having said that, there are good fats and there are also good ratios. Every cell membrane in your body, every cell in your body has a membrane, it's a basketball skin, that's filled up with the fats that you ate the last 90 days. And those particular fats, whether they're good fats or bad fats, actually help dictate your biochemical environment. So those fats should be in a ratio of about two to one bad fats to good fats, or if you will, omega-6s to omega-3s. I'm using bad fats now knowing full well that you can't eat a diet without omega-6s and that you need some for normal inflammatory uh, healing in terms of your body and biology. But the ratios most Americans have of bad fats to good fats is closer to 20 to 1. Bad fats, good fats. And that 20 to 1 sets us up. In fact, it kind of sets us ablaze. This is your only science class of the day, of all the slides I'm going to show. This is your omega-6 fatty acid track, and it builds up a compound called arachidonic acid. This is your healthier fat track, and this is where fish oil comes in, and your walnut and flax and all these good fats. And these two fat tracks actually compete with each other with one set of enzymes or batteries to run the two trains. So only one train gets to go on at a time. Sort of as a cellular default, when dinosaurs were biting us in the rear, I know my history is off a little bit, but when dinosaurs were biting us in the rear, there was a little bit of a, an effect that we needed to clot. In other words, in evolutionary terms, the default on our cellular computer was actually the less healthy fat track, probably because bleeding was a major reason for death some time ago. And so this track is the one that's on, so we look a little bit like this. And so in order to get this one off, I actually believe you have to really eat pretty clean. I, in fact, would say that genetically it's unique for us that for some of you in the room, even one or two meals of cheating is enough to crank on the bad fat track again and create the wrong biochemical environment. If you're fighting any disease, let alone aging, you don't want to be immunosuppressed. You certainly don't want tumor growth promoted. You don't want clot promotion, inflammation, angiogenesis. You really want all the opposite of that. You want a biology that's immune-enhancing, tumor-inhibiting, etc. And we compete with this biochemical environment by what we choose to eat. And unfortunately, meats and eggs and poultry and the wrong fats and dairy products build up arachidonic acid. And even cheap vegetable oils like corn oil 
can build up that track. And so we're trying to shift patients to this track, and it's measurable, actually, in terms of blood testing. It's actually very easy to look at fatty acid ratios on patients. And I can show you within four weeks' time of patients' blood tests having shifted over completely biochemically to a far healthier track. The results of that I'll show you in a few minutes in terms of what happens to the the terrain. But here's just one other factor is even if you're eating the right fats, if you eat too much of them, you can get into trouble. And so this was a study by Klebowski's group. It was published in 2005 uh, in, uh, at American Society for Clinical Oncology is where it was first presented. So over 2,400 breast cancer patients. And basically, those that went on a 20% fat diet or less had a 24% reduction in recurrence rates. That's kind of profound if you think about how many drugs and medications and everything else that we all use to try to prevent and reduce recurrence rates, yet, and, and, and how little is out there that actually does it, and yet a lifestyle adjustment can make this much of a difference. And what I would tell you is, is that I guess, but it's a guess, that less than 5% of American physicians tell breast cancer patients that they need to change their diets. So this is what I call the valley of death, the gaping hole between our having um, made you know, scientific information, developed scientific information that should be implemented right away, but it doesn't get implemented. We usually talk about that in terms of drugs and how long it takes to bring it to market. But I would say some of this information could be brought to market tomorrow but the information hasn't been out there. This is just a sidebar on this. This is in terms of can, you know, can fat, change, you know, fat change make a difference? And these are end-stage cancer patients. And just by adding fish oil on board, a single intervention, which I don't recommend. I recommend a multiple tailored target, you know, a target approach. But these patients live two and a half times longer than patients that didn't get the fish oil. And this is just our seven components of uh, nutritional uh, recommendations. Uh, Rainbow of vegetables, whole cereal grains, plant-based proteins, fruits and berries, uh, high-quality sources in terms of fat, um, and substituting dairy products for rice, milk, soy milk, almond milk, et cetera. And then I'm really very favorable to whole food-based green drinks. Um, and this is just one example of pomegranate uh, for prostate cancer patients. And the group that had eight ounces a day actually doubled their PSA times. Uh, in fact, they extended it by a fourfold increase. That's a good thing. In other words, they delayed the PSA doubling time by fourfold. Uh, and, and, you know, it has a quite a significant clinical relationship. It's possible to eat well and taste good. And we train patients hands on. When you enter our clinic, you actually see a kitchen first, and that was uh, done with intention to actually point out how important we thought uh, and believed nutrition and food is. For fitness, um, you know, there, there's more and more research coming out that if you take patients undergoing heavy doses of chemotherapy and you exercise them for 30 minutes while they're getting their chemotherapy, you can actually cut their side effects. Um, this study showed uh, diarrhea, pain, uh, neutropenia, white count, thrombocytopenia, platelets, and less hospital days, um, all being reduced from simple aerobic care. When I was trained, actually, uh, I can still remember being told you send cancer patients home to rest. 
and we thought we were really bucking the system when we first started telling patients to exercise. Um, breast cancer and colon cancer patients, just walking five to six hours a week is enough to cut the risk of death in half. It's kind of uh, impressive. Um, so circadian fitness, uh, I won't you know, overburden this now, but we really try to work on getting patients stronger, rebuilding them, endurance and interval aerobics, talking about long exercise, 30 minutes, 40 minutes of walking, minimum a day, along with these intervals of heavy aerobic, fast, short pieces to train the body to recover from stress and surgery, chemo, radiation, or any other therapies, or just the emotion, uh, emotional crisis of going through another CAT scan can be biologically burdensome. And so training the body to bounce back and recover is critical from our perspective. Flexibility and meridian stretching, massage and acupuncture, and we're really all about reestablishing one's clock. Um, there's research to show if your clock is off, um, it can be as much as cutting your um, five-year survivals for, say, colon cancer patients in half. It's really quite significant. So this is a gentleman who actually came to us after being sent into hospice um, and uh, kind of talked about from hospice to remission. Um, you know, we talk in medicine about, you know, kind of, you know, all of our areas of care. But if you think about it as a patient perspective, there's treatment. And if you're lucky, there's remission, and if you're not, there's hospice. We never talk about everything in between in terms of regimens, programs for reducing recurrence, for containing disease, for uh, no stone unturned. And so in terms of uh, book writing and stuff, we actually devoted a chapter to each of those concepts and uh, full programs with it. This gentleman had colon cancer with liver metastases. His chemotherapy was stopped because of toxicity. And he came to us after going to hospice in 2002 to put him on an alternative program, unquote. And I looked at what he had been on, and I said, you know, I want to give you your chemotherapy back. So we rebuilt him. It took a while to convince him, but we put him on chronomodulated chemotherapy, that circadian timing of drugs. I'll come back to it later. Needless to say, this is him on his sixth cycle of chemotherapy. He's actually jogging while his drugs are running. Uh, many of our patients actually are able to wear their fanny packs with their drugs. And we sent him home six months later in a complete remission. Um, so we, tr you know, we assess patients in terms of strength and flexibility and aerobics and even body composition analysis, and then we put them through everything from qigong to yoga, both one-on-one -on -one and groups, and massage. And that's me sticking acupuncture needles into a patient's ears to help her uh, manage the chemotherapy a little bit better. So I'm, you know, I'm stealing actually some of Penny's slides now. Um, her research and work, and even PhD work at the University of Chicago, is uh, in uh, the more psycho-oncology area. And I believe emotions certainly can you know, uh, affect patients, uh, even in terms of their outcome. Um, the research shows that you can even predict response to chemotherapy. So uh, this is a hospital anxiety depression scores. And if your depression and anxiety scores are both elevated, you'll have a score you know, that actually uh, determines or it emerges as a sole predictor um, for one's clinical response to chemotherapy. I don't know if you completely got what I just said, but in other words, if a patient's depressed and anxious and their scores are high, 
that's a single and sole predict predictor for whether they'll actually respond to their treatments. So to not make this standard and part of cancer care is, is kind of absurd, even from a humanistic perspective, let alone from an outcome perspective. This is a study that was done, a uh, randomized controlled trial, uh, 227 uh, women, 11-year uh, follow-up, and it was uh, kind of followed in terms of can psychological interventions actually impact survival. And this is, uh, you know, uh, some data on the top is just talking about some of the meta-analyses that have been done uh, looking at cancer incidence and mortality going up from stress and survival going from down. But this study I'm talking about here is, is actually um, uh, the results of it uh, actually showed that intervention group had a significantly re reduction, a significant reduction in breast cancer recurrence, death from breast cancer, and death from all causes. And the authors themselves say psychological interventions can improve survival in breast cancer patients. Um, we assess every patient in every component of the program when they go through this, and we come out with graphs, and the graphs allow not only everybody on staff to know what's going on with patients, but it becomes very quick to see as almost a direct feedback of how well they're doing in various components of the program. And so this allows us in the psychological area to keep a bit of a track on patients. These are just some different photographs uh, from the clinic in terms of the mind-spirit uh, component. And we actually run uh, what we call strategies for success, and not really all that favorable to what we call, you know, quote-unquote support groups, but rather bringing patients together to talk about solutions to problems that they're suffering from. And we also run events in the clinic on a regular basis uh, to expose patients to things that are outside of the kind of the regular ballywag of medicine. So these are, you know, actually patients teaching each other the cha-cha. And this is Penny uh, dancing with a patient of ours uh, from Alaska with his chemotherapy running. So, so I'm going to talk about this second area, biology or biochemical terrain. Um, and I'm only going to focus on a couple of these. But again, this is the pool or the soup that I'm really interested in transforming. And um, the book makes it clear, the whole middle section of the book, in terms of all of the science that supports the fact that this can make a huge difference in terms of what goes on with other factors of treatment. So... These are tests that we do. It's just a simple snapshot of some of the testing that we do. It's pretty involved in terms of laboratory things. We're trying to get a map of a patient. You can do this without the lab testing. You can do it and determine it by type of cancer, for instance. Colon and brain cancers are highly inflammatory. Um, other cancers have different uh, biochemical terrain factors. Clinical symptoms, side effects of treatment. But we do a lot of both molecular, gene, and um, laboratory testing, biochemical testing. And these are, you know, again, a uh, snapshot of some of the types of tests that we do. Um, all of this is in the book, as well as some of the different supplemental interventions in terms of natural products. Now, we're not limited to natural products. Uh, I will use uh, drugs with patients when it's necessary. But let me show you in terms of, you know, you might ask the question, how, how relevant is inflammation, for instance? Well, if you have a high level of a serum amyloid A and you're a breast cancer patient, um, you have a threefold increase of mortality. Uh, you have a twofold increase uh, of mortality if you have a high C-reactive protein level. And so best breast cancer patients with elevated and persistent inflammation have markedly reduced survivals, and that is true for most solid tumors. So we then develop strategies based on the biochemical environment 
that or the environments that are disrupted, and we correct lifestyle and disruptors and deal with fitness and diet issues. And these are a number of the supplements, but when necessary, we'll even intervene with medications since we consider the environment fundamental uh, for these patients in terms of getting it right. I'm not going to show you all the basic stuff leading into this, but this is another track looking at insulin, uh, IGF uh, axis, and glycemia. And you're talking about a diabetic patient load uh, here, and um, these are all colon cancer patients. And the patients with colon cancer stage 2 and 3 that have diabetes have half the survival as those that don't have diabetes. So that is a wow. That's a, a very big wow. But what if you say, I'm not diabetic? So I'll tell you that it makes no difference because you can measure insulin levels in any one of us, whether we're diabetic or not. These are breast cancer patients where most of this research has been done because they've been vocal. And this is the, what we call the highest quartile of insulin output. And the patients with the highest quartile have double the recurrence rates and triple the mortality. This seems to hold true for prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, lung cancer, across the board. There's research now showing this from the time that we actually started doing this work uh, a few decades ago. And the same thing, we correct lifestyle, fitness, diet, supplements, and medications just to get this environment correct you know, with it. And this is one patient uh, that I like to show because it's kind of very visible uh, what happened to her. She had metastatic ovarian cancer patient. She comes in the door with marked inflammation and fatigue. Um, she goes through a full training program with us. I give her some proteolytic enzymes for abdominal swelling, some thiactic acid for neuropathy. Um, and, but she had really you know, high inflammation, so I gave her a number of supplements in terms of inflammation, like fish oil and curcumin, um, or including them. So this is her lipid peroxides. It's an oxidative stress marker. And she comes in the door with a pretty high level. And then this comes down into normal range as we're working with her. Um, and... Sorry about that. I knocked your thing off. Um, and she then uh, goes off the program in August of 04. She kind of went on a binge holiday, as she described it. And when she goes on the holiday, when she comes back, she came right back to our office, and we tested her, and you could see her number jumps right back up. Same is true across the board. Her C-reactive protein, this inflammatory marker, starts off way high. We bring it down to almost an imperceptible level. She goes off the program. It jumps back up. Same holds true. We wanted her lycopene levels and many other phytochemicals up. We get them there. She goes off the program. They start to drop. Fibrinogen levels, a very important marker of cancer and inflammation uh, and coagulopathy, gets it down into normal range. She goes off the program, jumps back up. So this is her. It says down at the bottom, thanks for keeping me climbing, and it's out at uh, 14 years. This is a breast cancer patient, um, and she actually came to us at the time that she was diagnosed post-chemotherapy with liver metastases. So she's considered stage four. She goes through some treatments with us in a full program, and I just want to quickly show you a different way of looking at her labs. She's come, she's doing really well in the program, she's pretty clear, and then she has a major set of stresses that happen around the fall of 05. And we just happened to you know, come through our, she came through our door and we ran updated markers, and you can see lipid peroxide, C-reactive proteins, you know, all kind of flying off the handle and you know, kind of skyrocketing, or fibrinogen, or IGF-1, and even our total antioxidant protection uh, capacity. Uh, 
uh, protective capacity actually bottoms out. So we got her back onto a program, and this is her. She's now out 11 years with uh, metastatic breast and liver metastases and free of disease. Um, so let me talk about this last you know, area. Um, so um, you know, we, of course, do conventional and molecular. We also look at a number of off-labels, experimentals, uh, reasonable alternatives, what I would say are scientifically meaningful alternative therapies. Um, we look at interactions. I like the term couplers. We use natural products to help diminish toxicity, um, try to boost the effectiveness of therapies, try to reduce resistance, and similarly, timing of drugs and chemotherapy sensitivity testing. And each one of these areas, we do assessments on patients, some very conventional and some not so. Um, the big debate that will come up in almost any kind of uh, audience that I'll speak to is, is, well, what about the impact of antioxidants and chemotherapy together? So in 2007, um, and the debate is, just, just to frame this, is that the question is, is if you combine these at the same time, will that decrease efficacy and prevent cancer cells from actually getting the therapeutic benefits of chemo? Or will it increase the effectiveness of the drugs and reduce the toxicity, actually protecting the normal tissue? Or does it possibly do neither? And so in 2007, um, our research team went about reviewing the entire medical literature on the subject, um, five databases, uh, over 950 articles. We first looked at interference, and then we looked at um, side effect uh, toxicity uh, mitigation and what did the literature actually say. And these are called systematic reviews. They're very comprehensive reviews of literature. The first one was published in Cancer Treatment Reviews in 2007. The second one in the International Journal of Cancer in 2008. So this would be the, actually the standard and you know, best data that exists scientifically to date. Certainly one could argue that one needs more data. But what the information showed, and I combined these just to um, make it simpler and quicker to communicate, antioxidants actually enhance treatment outcomes. They increase survival times. They increase tumor response or both. The majority of the studies showed antioxidants groups had decreased toxicities. No trials reported a significant decrease in treatment efficacy, and no clinical trial evidence to date actually suggests a negative effect of antioxidants on chemotherapy efficacy. Um, these are just some studies to show that there really are lots of positive gold standard you know, research to support the use of herbs with different kinds of clinical conditions. Um, a recent one on ginger delaying nausea and vomiting, L-carnitine for fatigue, um, or ginseng, uh, uh, coenzyme Q10 for cardiotoxicity from different chemotherapies, glutamine uh, from mucositis, and many, many others uh, with this. This is a vitamin E study showing that actually the use of vitamin E in a controlled trial, a randomized controlled trial, uh, reduced the amount of neuropathy uh, compared to the control group that just got the chemos alone. Um, this is a group of men with a high-grade prostatic cancer risk. 
um, something called a PIN, prostatic intraepithelial neoplasia. And these patients generally, about uh, 30% of them, will convert into prostate cancer. The group that got the green tea, only 3% converted. The group that didn't get the green tea in this study, 27% converted into a full-blown prostate cancer. Um, this is uh, the use of a herb called astragalus uh, with lung cancer patients receiving platinums. Um, 2,800 patients, uh, 34 randomized controlled trials uh, done, and it showed basically a decreased risk of death and increased tumor response, and so uh, there clearly is, uh, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. Now, can you follow that slide? (laughs) Mark and I just came from the lung cancer conference in San Francisco going on uh, this weekend, and I have to tell you that these pathways tell you right away. It takes no wizard to look at this and say, how could we be single-targeting anything, right? One of the reasons we've been losing the war is because we haven't been talking about multi-targeting and tailoring the multi-targeting to what's going on with the individual. But just to understand this picture a little bit is if I block one of these tracks, it doesn't mean that it won't shoot over to another. In other words, if I take toothpaste and I close the top of the toothpaste and I keep squeezing and squeezing, at some point or another, something will break. There'll be an escape hatch, right? Well, these pathways that we have biochemically and these cancers are very creative in terms of alternative compensatory substitute, if you will, pathways. And these pathways have to be addressed. The problem is is that one drug, one target, and that's been the biology of what we've been following for 50 years of work. Instead of saying, let's use those drugs, but let's add other compounds on board that can multi-target. So it turns out that nutritional compounds are what we call pleiotrophs. Pleiotrophs are compounds that hit multiple mechanisms at the same time. So I don't expect you to be able to read this. But these are all different targets, just like some of the targets that were on that slide. Oh, you heard of VEGF and IGF-1 and EGFR and PAKT and COX-2. And these are all different compounds. And this is just one of many, many sheets that will develop on a single disease. This is breast cancer. And you can see the dots, and it's saying which agents have been shown in the literature to be associated with blocking these targets. And this is how we do research in trying to develop nutritional compounds for our patient care. Um, I've got a few more slides. It won't be too long. And um, this is an example patient of colon cancer with liver, lung, lymph, and bone metastases. And this patient had already gone through three full courses of chemotherapy before entering our doors. She was in very bad shape at the time, um, had considerable disease. And besides all the biochemical uh, fingerprinting that we did in terms of all those markers of inflammation and oxidation and glycemia, we also looked at her tumor tissue. And we also used compounds to block that as well. And she actually got four years uh, beyond her expected outcome uh, with us. Uh, Did not survive, unfortunately. Um, Chronotherapy, circadian timing of drugs. Look, there's now probably about 45 drugs uh, that we use for cancer therapy that actually have a clock. You have a clock. You have nine genes in your... uh, uh, nine critical genes that, com- uh, that actually uh, completely control your biology, your physiology. The timing of everything that you do in terms of your uh, physiology is, is tied into this clock. Reduce toxicity, improve treatment response, improve survival. 
there's research to show that if you time these drugs, you can actually get a better response from the drug and less toxicity from it. Let me show you that in just two examples. Um, advanced ovarian cancer patients that get their chemotherapy at an optimal time of day or night um, in one study showed uh, quadrupling, quadrupling of their five-year survivals. Um, bladder cancer, the same. This is an ovarian cancer study, uh, randomized controlled stage three and four patients. Um, and this is um, optimal timing of these drugs as opposed to where they took the drugs and they inverted the timing. Instead of giving them in the morning and the afternoon each drug, they gave them just the opposite in terms of timing. And so treatment complications were cut in half by the group that got the optimal timing. And complications in terms of I mean, dose, the need to reduce the dose of the drug actually cut down by 80%. And if you reduce the dose of the drug, like I showed you earlier, you actually are abandoning chemotherapy or reducing drugs or interrupting a schedule, all reduces the effectiveness of treatment. But the most important thing is, is the five-year survivals were fourfold better. 44% of these patients were alive five years later. The only difference they had was the timing of the drug. Now, I'm not suggesting this is a solo therapeutic approach. I'm really suggesting a whole integrative approach. So we actually call this happy chemo. And I'll bet you you couldn't tell me which one of these patients had the drug if it wasn't for, or was getting the chemo if it wasn't for a catheter spot that is showing in the picture. Where's Waldo? <laughs> okay. All right. So here's, she's actually getting it. And most of our patients actually very uh, impressively uh, tolerate their drugs very, very well. Um, this is a small trial we did uh, in-house where we had uh, colon cancer patients that were on routine infusions, and we took one set of those patients who we were, were re-challenging them with the same drugs that they had taken before and the drugs had failed them before. And we took that patient load and we gave them it under chronomodulation and we looked at what is called grade 3 and 4 toxicity. Those are patients with the highest levels of toxicity. And now, I grant you that if we had 150 patients, I wouldn't expect to see all zeros, but not one of these patients had grade 3 or grade 4 toxicity just by changing the timing of the drugs. You would have thought also with the accumulation effect of having been treated further that they would have had problems. So we give these drugs in special ways with patients, and this is one of those patients. I showed you him earlier. Um, he was uh, actually interviewed two years ago by Sanjay Gupta for CNN with metastatic colon cancer. He was diagnosed in 1988. He began a program with us uh, where he was not tolerating his drugs, and we switched him to a chronomodulation program, and he's alive and well 11 years later. This patient is actually in Evanston, uh, where our clinics are. She's right alongside the lake in Northwestern, and she's got her fanny pack with her chemotherapy running it's kind of impressive, huh? Wouldn't you like to look at this instead of a typical cancer therapy unit while you're getting your drugs? All right, my last set of slides. So, the, you know, the typical thing in terms of conventional care, unfortunately, from my perspective, is not the problems with the treatments. We're making incredible leaps rapidly in terms of genomic medicine and tailoring therapies to what's going on with a patient's unique biology. And so medicine is moving fast in these areas, and that's really exciting. It's what we're lacking in all these other areas that haven't been addressed in the ways they need to. A patient gets diagnosed with a metastatic cancer. They have a life crisis. Anybody with 
normal, with normal psychological functionings, have a life crisis. They go through major biochemical changes, clinical changes, right? And then they get some treatment. And sometimes that treatment will work for a while. And unfortunately, way too often, it'll stop working at some point. And then there's disease progression, complications set in, and that usually takes a patient's life. This is what's being called integrative medicine. And I'm going to be real clear with this, that I think it's great. And I'm thrilled to see hospitals and institutions all over America jumping on board for CAM, but I would call it generic CAM. It's not individualized. Basically, we're introducing some diet and fitness, some support groups, um, certainly not strategies for success. There may be a supplement or two that comes out of one of these big institutions, if that. Um, there'll be some physical care or palliative care. You know, the patient may even get uh, sent to an acupuncturist or find them on their own. And then there will be some similar effects, and at the end of the day, the results, in my opinion, won't be dramatic. In fact, we'll all suffer the consequences of the data that comes out of these studies, because the data that comes out of these studies will not be impressive. And when it's not impressive, we'll all kind of have to listen to our doctors say, I told you so. I actually believe this is substantially different, and that if you start off with things that are individualized from the get-go in terms of life, mind, spirit, retelling one's story, diet, the works, if you change the biochemical environment of a patient and you maintain careful serial retesting of patients so that you maintain this optimal environment instead of letting it slip south, and you look at all of these different clinical symptoms and changes and pain and insomnia that's going on with patients and work at correcting them. And then you go innovatively, if there's such a word, and if you go into an innovative approach of adding on chronotherapy, chemosensitivity testing, the use of off-label drugs, um, experimental therapies, you get much more creative. You live with a no-stone-unturned mindset. Um, which actually grew out of Commonweal and my relationship with Mark to a big degree. This transforms, I believe, this biology. Now, I mentioned something before, and I think that this treatment effect can be very different. I mentioned toxic metabolites. You give radiation or chemotherapy, you end up with a load of oxidative compounds and inflammatory compounds in your system. And those compounds are left there, and they actually damage DNA and so that the DNA gets more and more mutated, making a more and more aggressive cell that is more resistant to treatment. So even if the treatment is successful, it shows up later on, rearing its head again, because a lot of microcellular disease is invisible and shows up why we see so much recurrence with metastatic disease. And so we see toxicity because of this. We see downstream mutation, and we see resistance to drugs because we don't deal with patients as whole patients. We call it personalized medicine today, but it's really genomic medicine. It's tailoring to one's genes. Personalized medicine is really about a whole person, right? It's about your spirit, your food, your life, your relationships, your interactions, and all of your medical care. And so I actually believe that this track can at minimum be slowed, often enough be stabilized for many, many years, uh, and in many cases, it may be just the trigger not only to get a far better response, but actually lead to the potential for eradication of disease. So we kind of start with these you know, three spheres uh, with this, and 
Um, this was just published uh, in July uh, in the Breast Journal, and it was 90 metastatic stage 4 uh, breast cancer patients of ours. Um, all of their factors in terms of lymph nodes, estrogen receptors, tumor size, metastatic sites, were all pretty comparable between some historical controls that we used. Um, the age of our patient load was, uh, our patient group uh, was younger, unfortunately, making them uh, have more aggressive disease, not less aggressive disease. That was the only real factor that wasn't comparable. Um, the median survivals of our patient load was 38 months. The other trials you can see range from about 10 to 23 months. Um, with this, this substantial, if you use 16 months as a kind of average out there of expected survival for stage 4 metastatic breast cancer, that's about a two and a half times improvement. Um, keeping in mind that drugs like Taxotere, et cetera, have improved survival and get licensed in this country for boosting uh, patient survival by a few months uh, of time, I would say that you know, we actually have therapies that make sense to implement don't hurt patients and can have a profound effect in terms of long-term outcome. This is our group here, and one of the critiques often is, is, well, which organ site was involved? And so if you look, and you would expect bone cancer to be better survival, but if you compare us, we're still at least doubling uh, that group, or if you look at liver, we're certainly lower, as is true of the literature across the board in terms of survival, but it's still considerably higher than these other groups. Um, this is one of those patients. Uh, she's been out since 1995, and um, she actually had a physician chase her down the hall and said, you know, if you don't do your treatment, you'll die in less than a year. And she turned around and yelled back at him, you just told me I'm going to die even if I do your treatment. <laughs> so with all sincerity, and it's not because I don't really embrace uh, all the best of conventional medicine, I do, but I think we have just been uh, far too myopic for far too long. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. We're going to have time for some questions and answers, but before we do that, a word from our sponsor. Uh, this talk is sponsored by... Um, the new school at Commonweal and the Cancer Help Program. And it's one of uh, many events we do in the course of the year that we try to make extraordinary uh, speakers available to our community of friends, both locally and across the Bay Area, free of charge. Um, it, it does require a lot of energy and attention on our part. Uh, I want to acknowledge first uh, three people, uh, three alumni of the Cancer Help Program and close friends who volunteered their time today to help set this up. Uh, Susan Richter, Julie Portelli, and Mary Fleming. Could you just all stand up for a minute and let us express our <laughs> gratitude to you? And we also want to express our gratitude uh, to Julie Portelli for becoming Commonweal's volunteer coordinator. So, Julie, would you stand up again? And if any of you want to talk about volunteering at Commonweal, 
Julie is uh, a very, very key member of the Commonweal team who is contributing her time to help others contribute. Uh, if you want to contribute in another way, I have a Panama hat, and I pass this hat around, and uh, during the Q&A uh, session, if you are so moved, we are very, very grateful for your contributions. Waz, you want to say something? Thank you. And there's a uh, little thing for contributions there as well, if you miss the one here. Um, this really, the, the new school runs on a homeopathic budget. Uh, it's uh, almost, uh, you know, just extraordinary how little uh, support we have outside of contributions. So your contributions really make it possible, and we're seeing if this uh, business model of uh, providing high-quality events like this uh, free of charge and depending on the kindness of strangers and friends actually continues to work. So I will pass the hat as we uh, have the Q&A with Keith. I think uh, it's, it's hard not to recognize uh, what, uh, particularly as Mark was saying, for those of us in the field, um, the, the claims that Keith is making uh, for what the research literature says and what his clinical experience is are extraordinary claims. And there is an old saying that extraordinary claims require extraordinary levels of evidence. And one of the things I would really like to do at Commonweal would be to bring Keith back with a group of open-minded, sympathetic, but tough-minded colleagues and go through the major areas one by one because it would be important to ask Keith to what degree, when you point out one study, are you cherry-picking the literature and are there a dozen other studies that don't support that point, for example. Uh, it would be important to ask Keith, for example, the study that uh, you showed where anxiety and depression, if I understood, were the sole predictor of response, did I get that right, uh, to a chemotherapy. That calls out for a half hour of conversation about, you know, what that's really about. So I want to say that in uh, presenting Keith's work to you and saying to you, as I have said to you, that I think this is some of the most extraordinary work being done anywhere in the world in integrative cancer therapies, I also want to be very clear. I see Jeff Anderson here one of our great local physicians who's done extraordinary work in this area. Uh, I just want to be very clear that uh, I am not insensitive to the need for extraordinary proof when there are extraordinary claims. I just want to be clear about that. But having said that, I think you can see from, from hearing Keith and looking at this that his extraordinary claims are evidence-based, both clinically and in the research literature, and so this is a serious challenge to the way oncology is practiced in the United States. And this is really uh, one of the most uh, remarkable practitioners and researchers uh, in the country and in the world who are raising these important questions. So with that, uh, I want to open the, uh, the field for comments. 
I'd like to ask you to say your name and state your comment with Zen brevity uh, so that we can, you know, hear quick questions and get as many opportunities for response as possible. Um, and, um, and Keith, you'll be available to sign books sure. after the uh, presentation. Absolutely. Great. Um, Penny has Penny? Yes, the study about the hospital anxiety and the yeah. study. Yeah. It was the sole predictor when controlling for other medical variables, Michael. Excuse me? It controlled it was, for the... the study, it was the sole predictor of response to chemotherapy when controlling for the medical variables, the other medical variables. Oh, I didn't hear that piece. Okay, that's, that, that's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard Damn. it. So that's, that's, thank you, Penny, very, very much for that. Um, good. First question right there. You. Yes. My name is Eliza. Hi, Eliza. Three quick things. Um, does the AMA give you a hard time? Do you take Blue Shield and do you have a long, do you have a long waiting list? <laughs> no, yes, and sort of. <laughs> he said to be quick, right? Um, actually, insurance, we're, we're covered almost across the board with insurance, but they pay for what you would expect them to pay for, medical care. And then some of these areas believe it or not, like nutrition, is not medical care. Now, go figure that. I can't, but that's what the insurance company world does. So there are components that we're not covered for, but all the, if you will, big expenses are medical visits and, you know, are, you know, well covered. Um, The first, (laughs) I lost your your order. AMA. AMA, I belong to the AMA. I'm actually very involved. I run the and launched the Integrative Cancer Center for the University of Illinois College of Medicine, which is actually the biggest uh, medical school in the world. Uh, there's over 500 students annually uh, at the school. I'm pretty well accepted in terms of, you know, I belong to ASCO, the American Society for Clinical Oncology, and these different things. And most of what we're doing from a conventional vantage point would be hard to dispute or anything. The chronomodulation therapy, I should point out, in terms of circadian drugs, there's over 40 large centers in Europe that only give chemotherapy in terms of uh, you know, these approaches and stuff. And so it's not, uh, there's a, a serious literature that exists for chronotherapy, and nobody would really dispute that. It's really all these other things that are generally not considered medicine that is what we're adding. I don't actually believe that there is that much of a debate, if you will. I think that the debate is more about nutraceuticals and how they work, and I think that some of these studies that one might say are cherry-picked, the whole point is, is that we don't study things in totality and then look at the synergistic fat effects of a whole system. So it doesn't really matter to me, even if I do occasionally, un- unintentionally, cherry-pick studies and say, because that's how we use data, right? And one should know, this is the truth, that the bulk of work that we do clinically in the United States and throughout the world doesn't have gold standard research behind it. Certainly not all of the genomic work that's going on now. It's a long way from it, and yet we're already implementing therapies considerably. I would say, who wouldn't want a patient that has better biological integrity anyhow? Yes, in the back there. Yeah. Um, I would probably suggest that you come up afterward 
and I chat with you specifically, it sounds like a way too detailed question for a whole audience. Yes, Sorry. over here. Lori Taylor, I'm a nutritionist and dietitian trained in natural medicine. I work just starting work with an oncology clinic. What I'm finding is that physicians in our area, I know all seven oncologists, um, some of them absolutely refuse to permit patients in their care, not like they have that much power, but to, to take anything, not even a multivitamin. When you have all of the oncologists in one community who are very uh, conservative in their approach, I would say, or reactionary might be a nice way to say it. Um, <laughs> How does one make change, inroads of change, when the physicians are the, truly the gatekeepers of, of what's going on in chemotherapy and, and radiation therapy and treating disease? It's a fabulous question and a very difficult question to answer. Um, I'd probably generally suggest in these situations that um, you do everything you can to get involved in various cancer support groups um, around the country that exist for almost every disease now and that you become very vocal within those communities and start becoming uh, a bit more demanding in terms of what you want for care. Physicians... I'm looking at from a, sorry, from a practitioner's point of view where I actually have conversations with the physicians. So, so how, how do people that are in, in it as well like kind of get the dinosaurs to move a little bit? Because yeah. I kind of feel like... They, they don't believe it, so they don't want to do it. They don't want to read anything. Or look, I hate no. to sound depressing. How have you? I actually think it? most physicians are pretty reasonable if you put information in front of them that's reasonable. I also think that most physicians can be swayed, unfortunately, by everything from. Um, what comes down from the Vatican of medicine in terms of their particular specialty and field, and also, you know, somewhat of a shifting of thinking that, you know, goes on because of their pocketbooks. Um, and that's very real, and we're going to face that in much bigger ways in the next, you know, couple of years, in fact, what's going on in Washington right now. Um, the truth is, is that, you know, your ability to become very outspoken in terms of uh, physicians and what you want um, can have a major impact. And I've watched more physicians over the years who were very anti any of this stuff. And then, you know, uh, sitting down with them and educating them or their experience of watching patients not hide from the fact of what they're doing, but actually let them know what they're doing at the same time that they're going through care. Um, that that's been very transformative. And I can name docs all over the country who have become very closely connected with us who up front, but, but I'll tell you, up front would never have considered it. And I'll tell you, you know, one of the more funny uh, experiences that I have regularly, it happens at least once a quarter, is a physician comes in the room. It may be him or her, or it may be their spouse or a family member that they're with. And they'll tell me right up front, Two months ago, before I got this diagnosis, I never would have ever considered that I would be looking at work like you do. But after I looked at the literature and saw what unfortunately upsetting and disturbing prognostic uh, data is out there in terms of what the expectation of survival is, um, you know, there's a, a major change that happens when people kind of get it themselves. So I actually think this is a matter of time and some of the dinosaurs are just going to have to die off. I'd like to add just a couple of notes to that. One I'm sure Keith would agree with is, is um, my brother's an oncologist in Boston, and we know a lot of oncologists. And 
there are a lot of them who are doing absolutely their best for their patients to the ultimate degree of their skills and strength and belief. And um, they are trained um, to very high standards of what they regard as proof in the scientific literature. And if there aren't the extensive clinical trials and so forth on a subject and they don't they aren't sure about it and they don't know about it there's a whole lot of stuff it also takes such an extraordinary effort just to stay current with the oncology literature that they don't feel they have time for these other things so there are hundreds of things that reinforce the way things are done but as Keith was saying, when you look at the medical literature, particularly when you're talking about metastatic illness, you know, uh, it is often true, and friends and colleagues of mine who are research specialists will tell you that some of the, uh, the, the natural agents that Keith works with, the research is actually stronger for their potential uh, you know, contribution than it is for some of the uh, mainstream elements that are used experimentally, not, you know, because people don't know yet what to do uh, to be really helpful uh, in some of these situations. So one of the things I always believe in is just recognizing how dedicated and the level of integrity of so many mainstream oncologists and, and starting from belief in, in their goodwill. And that helps a lot because when you come to them, with these ideas, all people are more open if if uh, if we're recognizing how dedicated they are to their patients. You know, just a, a key aspect. Yes, ma'am, in the back there. I think we're a family practitioner, and I want to say that sometimes it can also help if you go along with your family practitioner as a associate. In other words, sometimes you can have your family practitioner or general practitioner or your own internal medical um, physician to whom you have greater access on a day-to-day basis intervene for you or help with the access to the oncologist because oftentimes you find that um, there are different studies that we as general practitioners have seen and we can intercede for our patients on behalf of this type of care. Thank you for that comment. I want to uh, just to, Ned Hulk and Jeff Anderson are both here, both people who've thought a lot about these issues. I don't want to put either of you on the spot, but do either of you have uh, comments or questions from listening to this? Well, it's just delightful deli- oh, yeah, to hear so much put together. So thank you for doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 it's, it's, it's brilliant work, and I'm, I'm very grateful that, to, that you're here, and we can all learn a lot more from your work and experience. I, and I was also, I, I like the comment about primary care physicians being an advocate, um, I think it would be very useful. And I'm also interested in something that was mentioned earlier, very timely, that was happening with the national health care bills and the direction that's going. And I was pleased to hear that a lot of your services are covered by insurance. I have a question about Medicare being in the same category. I don't know if that's true also. 
You know, let me answer that question a completely different way, because I, I think we are in a kind of period of change uh, in economics and medicine and what gives. And the first thing, you know, just to say that, you know, we're very supportive and fully uh, believers that all of this has to be researched in detail, but, you know, somebody has to be willing to do it and not look at it as single interventions. Um, and that's one of the big problems is that, you know, this is a system of care that I would say patients need and they live in anyhow. And so that when it comes to the money, uh, you know, they say follow the money in medicine, you know, you can follow the money pretty clear, right? If you give uh, bone marrow transplant patients glutamine, a simple, you know, supplement, amino acid, I mean, and give it to them through the course of their hospital stay, at least in one study, granted it's cherry-picking, um, $21,000 and a full week off of their hospitalization. And that was the only thing in a randomized controlled trial. So I would argue we need to do a lot more of those kinds of studies. Uh, I forget the one you quote, Penny, uh, the hypnotherapy study. It was a 15-minute pre-surgical intervention, 15 minutes, and saved on average, I think it's up to $3,000 per patient, and certainly saved on pain and other recovery aspects. 15 minutes. Other questions? Well, I think that's the main, main point. Yes, please, John. Point there, the question is, since it's, it's clearly true that in the long run, we're going to save a lot of money on health care by using the integrated approach. Um, and how do, we, how do we convince the people in Washington who are making decisions? <laughs> Grassroots movements. I mean, I, I think it's you know really the public that I don't. I don't think actually think medicine changes all that much because of you know science or you know. I mean, I think that's a very slow, long-term process. I, I think it's actually patient demand that changes. Uh, you know, and and so I would be very supportive of getting grassroots movements together to start demanding more in terms of health and the issue of you know our system's topsy turvy, right? We talk about. You know, everybody knows this. we're a disease care system, and then we, you know, as a sort of afterthought, add some health care. Oh, don't smoke, and oh, yeah, yeah, cut your weight a little bit. Or, you know, this, that. We need to change this so we're truly a health care system, and then we add disease care on top of it, and that'll reduce the costs, it'll improve the quality, and I believe it'll improve the outcomes. Yes. Uh, Sandy Ross, first thing people should do is buy a bunch of your books and give them to all the doctors. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, please do. <laughs> I did seriously have a question, and that, why is pneumonia one of the things which seems to be prevalent uh, toward the end of a person who has cancer, as I guess in many other stages of Probably two main reasons is one is as immune suppression occurs and patients have been treated, and the disease itself causes the you know patients to be really kind of broken down so they don't have the defense that they would normally have. The second is a stagnation. Uh, patients are on their back, you know, and so their lungs don't have the same movement of somebody that's upright and breathing and active, and so you know just like a cesspool outside and a you know. Uh, you know, a bucket that's sitting out with water in it and stuff starts to grow in it, and so people are more vulnerable. Uh, it's, you know, the, the arguments of this are kind of obvious in common sense. I mean, if you, actually, if you remove the nutraceutical issue, which I wouldn't, not by a long shot, because I think it's so critical and important, but if you remove that, a better fit patient, one that's eating better, one that's sleeping better, one that's happier, that's being supported better. I mean, there, there is no, this is all basic common sense. It's just doing it at a level of Olympic athlete intensity. Question right over here. 
Fabulous research project. <laughs> um, certainly there is, and I can tie in all kinds of issues of patients in terms of oh, detoxification and sleep patterns and when they got their drugs and everything else, but to really try to fine-tune how these studies are done with initially animals and then later humans and trying to determine when's the optimal time when the cells are dividing the most, the cancer cells, are in their greatest division or replication cycle is when you want to give the drug because that's when it will kill the cells the best. And you want the opposite is you want to give the drugs when the healthy tissue is at rest, when it's going to be the least vulnerable to treatment. And so that research was not done exactly with anybody thinking in the back of their mind, acupuncture meridians, though I am you know, fully supportive you know, that that has a role and there probably is an overlap, but that's a complicated research project. Yes. Those same issues uh, regarding the targeted immunotherapies, monoclonal antibodies, is it just conventional chemos that chronotherapy is useful with? What's known about chronotherapy and, and uh, the targeted immunotherapies? The, you're talking about the molecular target drugs? I'm, I'm not following the question, I'm sorry. So everything I've, I've heard you talk about has been the pretty conventional chemos, and I'm wondering if that works with like the monoclonal antibodies. Oh, yeah, okay. So, so most of that research is just beginning to get going. I, I was just actually speaking um, last month at the New York Academy of Sciences on a full day uh, run by uh, William Roshevsky and David Blask, uh, who are two big chronobiology researchers in the field of cancer. Um, Dr. Roshevsky has done enormous work, and the original work, probably the father of the industry, of looking at the timing of chemotherapy drugs and figuring out that, you know, if you will, map of when's the best time to give these drugs and how to give them. Um, that said, there is a tremendous amount of new drugs that are coming out so fast now in terms of molecular target drugs, these various monoclonal antibodies, um, and how that research gets funded, let alone done, is, is you know, a big question mark. And no, f there are some drugs that uh, we all talk all the time and communicate back and forth uh, on this subject uh, that we believe fit into certain patterns. Um, uh, Pemetrexid is a new methotrexate type of drug, and methotrexate has an optimal timing, so we are matching that to that. But this research really needs to be done and hasn't been yet. Asaja Greenwood is a physician in the community, studied functional medicine for many years. Asaja, as you've listened to this, any thoughts or comments from you? I think it's a wonderful presentation. I'm very excited to people who are as a cancer survivor myself, I've dealt for 34 years of survival from breast cancer that the most important thing I could do was lifestyle intervention. And so I'm just really happy to be you. And Virginia Veach, uh, an old friend of Keith Block's, uh, a psychotherapist and healer of the highest order, physical therapist. Uh, any comments from you, Virginia? Oh, I just am so grateful for the work you It's just so exciting and it's so needed. 
and I'm delighted that your book is out finally. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for all that you've done. Thank you. Well, I wouldn't be here and this wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for Penny's involvement and really launching all of this with me from, you know, really 30 plus years ago in terms of our ideas of what would we want. And we had one mission statement and it was, God forbid one of us came down with one of these awful diseases, how would we want to be cared for? And that's kind of led us. It didn't necessarily lead us through the easiest economic, you know, track, but it has, you know, kept us on track. And as I said earlier, I really believe this community has been immensely supportive for us to keep going forward at times when, you know, it was pretty rough. Yes, uh, Mark Renneker. So, the biggest question to you, we've talked about this often, but really, here you are in Edison, Chicago. In this Bay Area, it's in some ways long-standing sort of enlightenment, interest in all these mm -hmm. kinds of things. Why there isn't yet a center even remotely assembling what you do? Thank you. <laughs> so for Mark, it's a redundant question. Or <laughs> um, Mark knows this, and even Michael knows this. Uh, a dozen years ago, maybe, it was even 15 years ago, we actually tried to launch a clone of our operation here, and we interviewed and we tried hard. I've never worried that it would be the finances to make it happen, because I think people would come out of the woodwork to try to help make something like this happen here. Penny and I have uh, struggled with the, I think, and, and by the way, it's not the ancillary, it's not the integrative staff. It's not all the other, it's finding medical docs, particularly medical oncologists, who completely buy into an orientation of hope and tools and therapies and strategies that can be brought together and tailored to individual care. And so that's been a big hurdle, but uh, I actually believe what's happening to us, partially because of the book, is we're starting to get calls from medical oncologists who are really interested in what we're doing. And so finding somebody who either already exists in the Bay Area we were open, we even met at one point with a, a local medical oncologist um, with the idea of you know, trying to actually uh, swoop down and transform their practice into a more comprehensive, integrative approach or set one up, and we're certainly open for doing that. Gentleman in the back, yes. I'm sorry I wasn't here for your old talk, but it's glad to that genetic proclivities aside, source of cancer is often unexpressed emotion. Is there any research done in that area? Penny? <laughs> 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 falling out the door here. I think, I think that there is some debate about um, contributing or the percentage influence of emotion and distress to cancer. It's maybe, who knows, 8 to 10%. That doesn't Say that it doesn't have a place that isn't contributing because we all know that hard won elections can be can be won with five percent difference and if cancer is in a hard fought election, I don't know what is. But I other than that I really can't answer that very specifically. Let me answer that in a different quite way also to say I get asked the question all the time, do you believe diet will cure cancer, Doc? And my answer is not in and of itself. 
And I would answer the same question on almost each of these components. I don't believe that any one of these things is going to turn somebody's disease around. I believe it's about laying a completely different foundation and what the effects are in combination and then adding appropriate medical treatments in place in ways that do transform them and transform the patient to get a whole different outcome. Just talking about cancer prevention, is there any research done for cancer prevention regarding unexpressed emotion? There have been conflicting studies. Yes, lady right here. My name is Felicia Pei. I am a metastatic breast cancer survivor, and I'm very happy to find your books, Dr. Block. I miss though. It was available last year when I had kids, but it was never too late. <laughs> anyway, I did uh, use the personal, uh, the individual intervention through the personal diet during my chemo for nine months uh, for clinical trial, uh, Alfastin, Gensar, and Caxol. And uh, I, I do believe about that chronological, chronological, I use it myself, I did a lot of research and I did trial on myself because I really, you know, wanted uh, to do it so that you know, maybe I can share with other people, you know, and uh, so here I am, I finished my uh, chemo last year and I did have surgery, my metastatic is the, through the bones. And so I am, uh, so my cancer on the breast is gone, so I still have my breast. Uh, and the bones, I don't know, it's kind of hard to, because at least I didn't feel pain on my bones. And now I am on aromacin. And I'm just wondering, uh, I have, uh, I'm just wondering if I can, you know, I want to take a chance, you know, to drop the aromacin and uh, uh, do, you know, uh, the, uh, get rid of the aromacin and then I'm really careful with my diets and person, you know, the positive mental energy. Can I suggest that I think we have the sense of it and I really appreciate it. Keith, do you have a response to that? You know, I, I don't practice medicine in kind of toll stop medicine, you know, like it, it, you need to know all the details to really start to answer a question. But I applaud you for having at least made as far as you have and as well as you have on your own. It's quite impressive. Sure. And I also have 
have AI concerns. In that, um, I seem to have had slow-growing cancers. And from the clinical trial done, everyone was lumped together, progressive and slow-growing, no distinction being made. And mine meant breast to solitary pulmonary nodule. No NED currently. Are there alternatives, integrative, holistic alternatives? Um, to AIs. Yeah. So let me just answer your two questions kind of in a, a brief way. One is, is Bahari, B-I-H-A-R-I, is, is who actually did the naltrexone work. Um, and uh, he's got a huge case series that he's presented uh, uh, to NIH, uh, to NCCCAM. And um, the suggestion is, is that this very small amount of this, you know, kind of... It's a, a drug to, it was originally a drug to pull people out of uh, a narcotic overdose, actually. Um, but in a very tiny dose, it's uh, purported to block opioid receptors. And he has seen cases, at least he reports them. If you go to lowdosenaltraxone.com, you can actually read about his cases and stuff. And it's just one of many off-label compounds and off-label drugs that actually exist out there. Your other question is more interesting to me, and that's, are there natural compounds that can act as you know, an aromatase inhibitor or a blocker of estrogen and this and that? And, and there are compounds that actually download estrogen. There's indole-3-carbinols you find in your cabbages and crucifers. And, um, and there's a number of these kinds of agents, something called calcium deglucarin that can actually help download calcium, uh, I'm sorry, not calcium, um, download estrogens uh, um, and reduce them. And I think that they, they have value. This is where these studies become very important and they're not done yet in the way that they need to be done. So I would never suggest a patient use one of these in place of a proven conventional therapy that has meaningful data behind it. On the other hand, I have no problem of combinations, and I also have no problem when a patient, for one reason or another, can't take one of these things in terms of a conventional drug or is having some problem with it. Now, having said all of that, I think the bigger issue is, is that if you look at tamoxifen and you start talking about the unique gene picture of a woman, what you'll find out is, is that there are somewhere about 40% total of what we call poor metabolizers and intermediate metabolizers, women who actually do not activate, do not get benefit from tamoxifen. In fact, they're the patients that actually have no side effects from the drugs. The patients that generally are responding are the ones that actually have side effects. And so who is it that ends up stopping these drugs? often because of a lack of communication that, in fact, here's where these types of natural compounds can be hugely helpful for reducing some of the side effects to a drug that, if a patient was tested properly and if this was routine care, uh, you know, you would see that, wow, these patients that are better metabolizers actually activate the drug or getting the benefit from the drug. And that would be the kind of mirror message that says, oh, maybe I should be living with these side effects, or maybe I can use some nutraceuticals and integrative strategies, meditation, et cetera, to deal with some of the side effects of it. So that's how I would fit into a, a message. Of, yeah. So in terms of time, we've, we've run out of time for additional questions. I've asked my colleague, uh, Susan Braun, Executive Director of Common, Commonweal, to make a comment, and then I have one last question for Keith and then he will sign some books. So, Susan? Thanks. 
Um, mostly I wanted to say thank you. And one of the main reasons, I've been working in the world of cancer for a very, very long time. And what most of you probably know is there isn't one kind of cancer. There are over 100 kinds of cancer. And they're as different as they are similar. Uh, even we're talking about breast cancer, I would argue there are at least two very distinct kinds of breast cancer that could be different cancers totally. And what you have done is what so many people don't have the time and the intelligence and the inclination to do, which is to take this very, very complex series of diseases and look at the science of those diseases along with what goes on in our individual bodies, along with our nutrition, and along with what goes on in our individual minds and in our individual lives. And, and you have taken this very, very complex array of things and pulled them together in, into a system whereby not only your patients clearly, clearly benefit from this, but I think everyone who's working in the world of cancer will find a lot of ways to benefit from this extraordinary amount of work. And I, I can tell you, this is yeoman's work that has been done in this because it's extremely detailed, extremely complex. There is so much data that has gone through. I've read this book, extraordinary data that's gone through. And this is something that will benefit people for generations to come. So I just wanted to say thank you very much, how much we appreciate from everyone the work you've done. Thank you. So my last question for Keith. Uh, I want to ask you, Mark uh, Raneker said that in the 30 years that you've done this, that in surfer vocabulary, you haven't lost your stoke. And uh, I wanted to ask, uh, I've been to your center. I know the odds that you and Penny have faced doing this work. Um, I want to ask you, what is it that for you and Penny has has kept your stoke going these last 30 years in the face of all the challenges that you faced in doing this work? That's quite a question. Um, you got 24 hours? <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, the obvious and simple but very honest and truthful answer is, is patience. You know, uh, I have to do this. <laughs> I actually pulled it out and I was going to do it when I started. But I'll read you just one opening paragraph at the end of the book, the epilogue. Um, it's kind of far off of the science of this, but I, I think it's actually in a kind of significant way how we have kind of experienced this whole process. And, and I think really taking care of patients um, is a very unique and profound gift um, a painful one, but it's a profound gift, and I think that that's been, um, you know, the without a question, the deepest driving force for us. Thank you. I'm not used to that. Um, okay. Um, this is actually the gift of time and hope, and it's really the epilogue of the book, and it's a paragraph uh, 
and I, I think it kind of does speak to this, many of my patients, while acknowledging the adversities they face, still describe their cancer as a surprising opportunity, one that helped them to appreciate what is truly important in life, including a greater appreciation for the relationships, a deeper regard for self-discovery, an enlarged scope of meaning and purpose, and a deeper connection to faith or awe in living. A diagnosis of cancer can remind us that we don't have unlimited time and help uh, to re-engage in living and rediscover what and who are most important in our lives. Cancer can actually strip away our armor, uncovering what is both meaningful and genuine in our lives. While work is necessary and important, I cannot recall any patient telling me that they wish they had spent more time at their job. Yes, of course, some wish they had completed this project or that, a book, a play, a home, or a trip to Italy, but mostly my patients expressed a wish to have repaired injured or lost relationships earlier and to have spent more tender and sensitive time laughing and sharing with those they love. Whether under the strain of diagnosis or in the arduous ways of treatment, I have witnessed many patients find the courage and strength to confront past regrets or reach out to those they have hurt, forgive those who have hurt them, and find profound healing. My patients tell me their diagnosis changed them, making them more spiritual, more sensitive, and more compassionate toward themselves, toward others, and toward their and our world. I've heard countless patients say, I've lived more in the past six months than I've lived in the last six decades. Keith Block, thank you for being with us at the New School.